0: The mountain pinnacles slumber, valleys, crags, and caves are silent. Listen to me,
1: said the demon as he placed his hand upon my head.
0: The region of which I speak is a dreary region in Libya. By the borders of the rivers I air, and there is no quiet there, nor silence. The waters of the river have a saffron and sickly hue, and they flow not onwards to the sea, but palpitate forever and forever beneath the red eye of the sun with a tumultuous and convulsive motion. For many miles on either side of the river's oozy bed is a pale desert of gigantic water lilies, They sigh one unto the other in that solitude, and stretch towards the heaven their long and ghastly necks, and nod to and fro their everlasting heads. And there is an indistinct murmur which cometh out from among them, like the rushing of subterrene water, and they sigh one unto the other. But there is a boundary to their realm, the boundary of the dark, horrible, lofty forest. There, like the waves about the Hebrides, the low underwood is agitated continually. But there is no wind throughout the heaven, and the tall primeval trees rock eternally hither and thither with a crashing and mighty sound. And from their high summits, one by one, drop everlasting dew. And at the roots, strange poisonous flowers lie writhing in perturbed slumber. And overhead, with a rustling and loud noise, the grey clouds rush westwardly forever, until they roll a cataract over the fiery wall of the horizon. But there is no wind throughout the heaven, and by the shores of the rivers I air, there is neither quiet nor silence. It was night, and the rain fell, and falling it was rain, but having fallen it was blood. And I stood in the morass among the tall, and the rain fell upon my head, and the lilies sighed one unto the other in the solemnity of their desolation. And all at once the moon arose through the thin ghastly mist and was crimson in color. And mine eyes fell upon a huge grey rock which stood by the shore of the river and was lighted by the light of the moon. And the rock was grey and ghastly and tall. And the rock was grey. Upon its front were characters engraven in the stone, and I walked through the morass of water lilies until I came close unto the shore, that I might read the characters upon the stone, but I could not decipher them, and I was going back into the morass when the moon shone with a fuller red, and I turned and looked again upon the rock and upon the characters, and the characters were desolation. And I looked upwards, and there stood a man upon the summit of the rock, and I hid myself among the water lilies that I might discover the actions of the man. And the man was tall and stately in form, and was wrapped up from his shoulders to his feet in the toga of old Rome and the outlines of his figure were indistinct. But his features were the features of a deity. For the mantle of the night, and of the mist, and of the moon, and of the dew, had left uncovered the features of his face. And his brow was lofty with thought, and his eye wild with care. And in the few furrows upon his cheek, I read the fables of sorrow and weariness and disgust with mankind, and a longing after solitude. And the man sat upon the rock, and leaned his head upon his hand, and looked out upon the desolation. He looked down into the low, unquiet shrubbery, and up into the tall, primeval trees, and up higher at the rustling heaven, and into the crimson moon. And I lay close within shelter of the lilies and observed the actions of the man, and the man trembled in the solitude, but the night waned and he sat upon the rock, and the man turned his attention from the heaven and looked out upon the dreary rivers I and upon the yellow ghastly waters, and upon the pale legions of the water lilies. And the man listened to the sighs of the water lilies, and to the murmur that came up from among them. And I lay close within my covert, and observed the actions of the man. And the man trembled in the solitude, but the night waned, and he sat upon the rock. Then I went down into the recesses of the morass, and waded afar in among the wilderness of the lilies, and called unto the hippopotami, which dwelt among the fens in the recesses of the morass. And the hippopotami heard my call, and came with the behemoth unto the foot of the rock, and roared loudly and fearfully beneath, moon and i lay close within my covert and observed the actions of the man and the man trembled in the solitude but the night waned and he sat upon the rock and i cursed the elements with the curse of tumult and a frightful tempest gathered in the heaven where before there had been no wind and the heaven became livid with violence of the tempest, and the rain beat upon the head of the man, and the floods of the river came down, and the river was tormented into foam, and the water lilies shrieked within their beds, and the forest crumbled before the wind, and the thunder rolled, and the lightning fell, and the rock rocked to its foundation. And I lay close within my covert, and observed the actions of the man and the man trembled in the solitude. But the night waned, and he sat upon the rock. Then I, grew angry and cursed with the curse of silence, the river and the lilies and the wind and the forest and the heaven and the thunder and the sighs of the water lilies. And they became accursed and were still And the moon ceased to totter up its pathway to heaven, and the thunder died away, and the lightning did not flash, and the clouds hung motionless, and the waters sunk to their level and remained, and the trees ceased to rock, and the water lily sighed no more. And the murmur was heard no longer from among them, nor any shadow of sound throughout the vast, illimitable desert. And I looked upon the characters of the rock, and they were changed, and the characters were silence. And mine eyes fell upon the countenance of the man, and his countenance was wan with terror. And hurriedly he raised his head from his hand and stood forth upon the rock and listened. But there was no voice throughout the vast, illimitable desert and the characters upon the rock were silence. And the man shuddered and turned his face away and fled afar off in haste so that I beheld him no more.
1: Now there are fine tales in the volumes of the Magi, in the iron-bound, melancholy volumes of the Magi. Therein, I say, are glorious histories of the heaven and of the earth and of the mighty sea and of the genie that overruled the sea and the earth and the lofty heaven. There was much lore too in the sayings which were said by the Sibyls, and holy, holy things were heard of old by the dim leaves that trembled around Dodona. But as Allah liveth, that fable which the demon told me as he sat by my side in the shadow of the tomb, I hold to be the most wonderful of all. And as the demon made an end of his story, he fell back, Within the cavity of the tomb, and laughed. And I could not laugh with the demon, and he cursed me because I could not laugh. And the lynx which dwelleth forever in the tomb came out therefrom, and lay down at the feet of the demon, and looked at him steadily in the face. You'd be forgiven for thinking that was Lovecraft, but that was silence, a fable by our featured author this week, Edgar Allan Poe. Poe was an influence on Lovecraft's writings, and if you look at some of Poe's lesser-known work, you'll see that same weird fiction that Lovecraft popularized through Cthulhu and the Old Ones. Thank you for joining me for this week's issue of The Zine, a weekly audio magazine of vintage and not-so-vintage fiction, curated and at this point exclusively narrated by me, your host, Chris Mayer. That is to say, it's all vintage until I can afford to buy audio rights to some contemporary short fiction. Hence the Patreon, which I'll plug at the end of the program. I'm a big fan of Edgar Allan Poe. My wife and I take a yearly vacation to Baltimore, not for Poe, but just to go see Baltimore. And I haven't done the Poe tour yet, but I make a point to spend some time at the Horseshoe Came In on Saloon, which was the last place Poe was seen alive. Rumors say his ghost haunts that place, but none of the staff members could ever confirm that, although they did tell us some great stories of other hauntings. The place is haunted, but maybe not by Poe himself. Now, before we get to some more Poe, we're going to switch gears and head to a quaint little town called Merivale. Alice Hale Burnett wrote children's books in the early 20th century. This next story was originally published in 1916 in a series of books about the boys and girls of Merivale. And it's a nice illustration of part of my mission with this podcast. Alongside entertaining you and providing some short-form audio you can listen to in one go, I want to unearth some history. Through our stories, we can see what life was like back then. We can dust off our forgotten past and inject some new life into stories and dreams that should be remembered. And that applies to the more problematic stuff, too. And there will be some. We need to take a good look at the ideas and views of the time and what they were normalizing so that we retain our perspective and continue to grow as a people. Our legacy of literature serves as a record of our soul as a culture, and it's important to preserve that, the ugly as well as the beautiful. But I digress. There's no ugly here, just a fun look at some Halloween and birthday practices and traditions of the time. At least, I'm assuming Ms. Burnett based the events on what they actually did back then. So without further ado, let's have a party in Maryvale, shall we? Halloween at Maryvale by Alice Hale Burnett Chapter 1 Getting Ready for the Party What's Halloween mean, Father? asked Thomas Brown as the family was seated at breakfast one morning late in October. "'It means the evening before All Saints' Day,' answered Father Brown. "'Do you remember what fun we had last year, Chuck?' remarked Toad, for Thomas was called Toad by his friends, and Charlie was known as Chuck. "'I should say I do,' he answered. The Browns had always lived in the town of Merryvale in a large white house set far back from the street, and not far away was the home of Toad's best friend Reddy and his brother Frank nicknamed Fat. "'We had great fun when I was a boy,' resumed Father Brown, for my birthday anniversary falls on Halloween, and your grandmother would always have me invite the boys in the neighborhood to a party on that night. Oh, I wish mine weren't two days later, or I might have a party too, sighed Toad. There's no reason, Thomas, said his mother with a smile, why you can't celebrate your birthday on Halloween if you'd like to. Oh, mother, that's fine, cried Toad, jumping up from the table and running around to his mother's place to give her a hearty hug. You always make things right, he added. We'd better ask all the fellows in school today, suggested Chuck, for Saturday is Halloween. Toad lost no time when he reached school that morning in giving his invitations to the party, and all the boys were glad to accept, for they always had a fine time at Toad's house. When Saturday morning arrived, Mother Brown sent Toad off to the barn to get some large red apples. Be sure they have strong stems, she warned him, or I shall not be able to use them. The apples had been packed in barrels with plenty of straw to keep them from freezing, and when Toad reached the barn, he pulled out one after another until he thought he had plenty. Just as he was wondering how many trips he would have to make to get all the apples to the house, a face peeped around the doorway. Hello, Reddy, laughed Toad. Come on in and help me with these apples. I've got to carry them up to the house, he explained. They're for the party tonight. Couldn't we eat just one now? asked Reddy picking up from the floor a shining red apple. Hey, not that one, cried Toad. Take one without a stem. Huh? protested Reddy. What difference does that make? I wasn't going to eat the stem. Toad laughed. Mother wants strong stems on them. I don't know why, he explained. What's a Halloween party like? inquired Reddy, seating himself on the top of a potato barrel. That says, he continued, that there's always ghosts. Oh, who's afraid of baby things like ghosts? jeered Toad. Well, I'm not either, protested Reddy. I knew he was only trying to scare me. After the boys had carried the apples up to the house, Mother Brown looked them over and exclaimed, They're just what I want. Such fine strong stems. Chapter 2 The Fun Begins. At about half-past seven o'clock that night, the boys who had been invited to the party began to arrive at the Browns' home, where they were met at the door by a figure in white. It had queer rabbit ears, made from tying up the corners of a pillow slip that had been placed over its head. The eyes were holes cut in the slip. The large hall was lighted by many candles set in hollowed-out pumpkins, which had queer grinning faces cut in them. Wow, but this is spooky, giggled Fat, at which the other boys laughed. Now the figure in white, which was really toad, asked the boys to follow him as he led them to Father Brown's study. Here they were met by Chuck, also in white. Good evening, Mr. Ghost, greeted Reddy, bowing low. How do, nodded the ghost, and Chuck could scarcely keep from laughing as he added in a deep voice, Put on these slips and hurry up, pointing to a pile of them on the floor. Oh, I know who you are, laughed Fat, but I won't tell. And he hastened to scramble into a pillow slip which he twisted around his head until he got the slits for the eyes in the right place. My ears are longer than yours are, boasted Herbie as he danced about. All the better to hear you, my dear, laughed Lynn Smith. As all were now ready, Chuck led the queer-looking party of long-eared figures into the library, where they were met by Father and Mother Brown, dressed in black gowns with tall witches' caps on their heads. There was a large black pot hanging in the fireplace, and Mother Brown began to stir something in it with a long iron spoon. Fat walked directly over to the fireplace and peeped into the pot. If ghosts had noses, he sniffed, I'd say that smelt awfully good. Father Brown now went about, pinning a number on each boy's back. What's that for? asked Toby. Well, you all look so much alike, laughed Mr. Brown, that I can't tell you apart. And... After a pause, there's going to be a prize for this game. That's great, shouted Herbie. Hope I get it. Chuck now left the room, returning a moment later with a huge pumpkin, which he placed on a chair in the corner. Who's number one? He asked, at the same time lifting high into the air the stem of the pumpkin, which had been cut off close to its base. I am! Announced Hopi Smith from his place before the fire, where he had been helping Mother Brown stir the contents of the great black pot. Well, hurry and come over here if you're first, called Toad, and I'll turn your slip around so you can't see. Here's the stem, said Chuck, placing it in Hopi's outstretched hand. Father Brown now took Hopi by the shoulders and slowly turned him around again and again. I believe you've had enough turns to wonder where you are, he said, adding, Now see if you can place the stem on the pumpkin. Hopi started off, both hands held out before him. You mustn't feel anything with your hands, called Herbie. It isn't fair. All right, was the answer, as he walked straight for the corner where Fat was sitting, watching the fun. Keep perfectly still, whispered Chuck in Fat's ear, as Hopi drew near. Then as he paused before Fat and placed the stem upon his head, the boys broke into shouts of laughter. "'Oh, you pumpkinhead!' gasped Reddy. Hopey pulled off his pillow slip and stared in wonder about him. Then he, too, laughed. "'I was so sure I had it on the pumpkin!' he exclaimed. "'Better be careful, fat!' warned Toad. "'If Mother takes you for a pumpkin, she'll put you in a pie!' Numbers two, three, and four hadn't much better luck, for Herbie stuck the stem on the center table, Chuck on a bookstand, and Reddy tried very hard to put it into the pot, but Mother Brown held out her hand just in time to save it from falling in. Lynn's turn came next. Watch me, he said. I'm going to do it. Bet you don't, challenged Reddy. Then Father Brown gave him a few quick turns and away he started. After taking two or three steps forward, he paused, then stretching out his hands, he walked slowly toward the fireplace. When he had reached it, he turned about and faced the room. Now I know where I am, he thought. I'll walk right over to the corner by the door. Look, whispered Chuck to Herbie. He knows where he's going, all right. Each boy held his breath as Lynn drew closer and closer to the chair which held the pumpkin. Then, as his knees struck against the edge of it, he stopped and placed the stem on top of the pumpkin. Good for you, Lynn, cried Toad. I didn't think you could do it. Oh, it was easy, boasted Lin. The heat of the fire told me where the fireplace was, then when I turned and faced the other way, I knew I only had to walk to the left to reach this corner. Here's the prize, announced Chuck, stepping up to Lin and handing him a box. Hurry up and open it, cried Hopi. We want to see what's in it. And as the lid came off the box, Lin exclaimed, A baseball! Just what I've been wanting! And he tossed it up into the air. That's as lively as a cricket, commented Herbie, as he caught the ball and bounced it on the floor. Chapter 3 The Swinging Apples Mother Brown now whispered something in Fat's ear, and with a broad grin Fat disappeared through the door leading to the kitchen. In another moment, he reappeared carrying two large, well-greased pans in his hands. At once, the boys all crowded about the fireplace, trying to help, and in less time than it takes to tell, the taffy that had been boiling in the large pot was poured into the pans and set away to cool. By Jiminy, I hope it tastes as good as it smells, observed Toad. I'm sure it will, replied Mother Brown, with a smile. Stand in line, ordered Chuck, while I tie your hands behind your backs. You're not going to spank us, are you? wailed Fat, making believe to cry. No, silly, laughed Chuck, adding, Everyone take off his slip now. We need our whole faces to play this game. Toad, with the help of Father Brown, then placed a long pole so that the ends rested on top of two bookcases and from it hung many bright red apples tied on with strings. Now, said Chuck, the fellow who can take one good bite out of an apple without using anything to steady it with gets a prize. Me first, cried Herbie. All right, was the reply. Go ahead. And Herbie started. At first, it seemed very easy. But whenever he got ready to take a good bite, the apple always slipped away. The boys all laughed as Herbie made one dive after another. Ah, have a bite, cried Reddy. I picked that one out for you. Herbie then gave the apple a push and stood with his mouth wide open, awaiting the return swing, but instead of getting a bite, the apple landed on his nose. Fat fairly rolled over with laughter, and after a few more attempts, Herbie gave up his place to Lynn Smith. Then Father Brown took Herbie's apple off the string and, tossing it to him, said, Here's the booby prize. Lynn had no better luck than Herbie, although he tried his hardest. The apple always bobbed about his head, rolling away just as he thought he had it. You're next, called out Toad, as Fat stepped forward toward the apples. Good evening, said Fat, bowing low. I've a very empty feeling. Would you like to step inside? Ah, hurry up, shouted Reddy. I want to turn sometime tonight. So do I, chimed in Hopi Smith. Fat grinned. Don't be in such a hurry, it never pays, he retorted. Again and again he tried, but did no better than the rest. Hopi Smith, who followed, had no success. And then came Reddy's turn. Bending down, he brought his face up under the lower end of the apple, and opening his mouth very wide and bringing his teeth together with a quick snap, he succeeded in biting a piece out of the apple. Dandy! shouted Toad. He gets the prize! And as he handed the winner a box, Reddy opened it and exclaimed, Oh, it's a knife! That's great! And I needed one, too. That's a beauty, declared Herbie. You're lucky, Red. Chapter 4 The Candy Pull Don't you think the candy's cold by this time? whispered Fat to Toad. Let's find out, suggested Toad, and the two boys walked over to the table where the pans had been placed to cool. Very gently placing his fingertips upon the candy, Fat exclaimed, Oh, it's just right! Plenty cool enough to pull. Hey, come on, everybody, shouted Toad. The candy's ready. I'll get some butter, offered Chuck, running off to the kitchen, saying as he went, Wait until it comes. It keeps the candy from sticking. When he returned, the boys all greased their fingers well with butter and set to work pulling the taffy. Let's see which one can make his the lightest, suggested Lin. I used to be pretty good at this work when I was young, he laughed. Well, Grandpa, I'll beat you this time, boasted Toad. Won't somebody help me out of this, wailed Herbie, holding up before him two very sticky hands. He had been so anxious to commence pulling his taffy that he had not waited for the butter. You're a sad-looking sight, laughed Fat. Why didn't you wait to see how I did it? He chuckled. You'd better go and wash it all off suggested Father, and make a fresh start, for there's plenty of taffy. Herbie took his advice. Reddy, what was that the teacher said in school the other day about too much candy being bad for little boys? inquired Chuck from his corner by the fireplace, at which Reddy laughed. Come on, he said. Let's see whose taffy's the lightest. Yes, everyone hold out his piece. proposed Lynn. Oh, yours is, admitted Toad, as he saw Lynn's cream-colored taffy. Looks like a lock of Mary Lee's hair, observed Herbie, glancing at Lynn's piece. You're always talking about her, teased Fat. Am not, denied Herbie stoutly, his face turning red. Oh, look at the little dear blush, cried Toad in great glee, just dodging the sofa pillow aimed at his head by Herbie. Hopi, leaning back comfortably against the side of the fireplace, heaved a sigh of contentment. Got a tummy ache? asked Reddy. Nope. Just enjoying myself, was the answer, as he took another bite from his piece of taffy. What do we do next? inquired Chuck, turning to Father Brown. I'm expecting a witch at nine o'clock to tell fortunes, was the reply. I hope she doesn't disappoint us. A witch? shrieked Fat in a high, thin voice, making believe to be very much alarmed. I hope she won't change me into a snake. Oh, you'd make a better turtle. You're so fond of walking slow. Laughed Lynn. She'll turn Herbie into a sleeping prince, and Mary Lee will be the princess who kisses him and wakes him up, said Chuck, teasingly, at which all the boys roared with laughter. As Herbie started off after Chuck, a merry chase followed, which the other boys enjoyed, at times holding Chuck until Herbie was almost upon him, and then letting him go, only to catch Herbie and hold him in turn. Suddenly, in the midst of the uproar, there came a sharp rap on the door. One, two, three. Hush, whispered Chuck. It's the witch. Chapter 5. The Witch Tells Fortunes Come in, invited father and the boys, standing in a group, watching the knob of the door turn slowly. As it opened silently, they saw standing on the threshold a little old woman, all bent over, a long black cape and hood covering her from head to foot. She carried a cane with a crook in it and leaned very heavily upon it as she walked. Muttering to herself, she crossed the room and took a seat by the fire. Her coarse gray hair fell in straggly locks about her face, almost hiding it from view. Suddenly the lights went out, leaving the room in darkness, save for the firelight. Place the pot before me, she ordered, in a high, broken voice, shaking her stick at Fat. Yes, ma'am, said Fat, hurrying to obey. She's got Fat scared to death, giggled Toad to Reddy. From under her cape, she now took a small paper bag and poured the contents into the pot before her. Then, standing up, she hobbled around it three times, waving her arms and humming a queer little tune. Soon a dull red light glowed from within the pot, getting brighter and brighter. "'It's magic!' whispered Toad to Hopi Smith. The old witch now sat down again, and took from beneath her cape a small pad, a long quill pen, and a queer little bottle filled with milky white fluid. "'If you drink any of that, you'll get as small as a flea,' said Fat in a low voice. The old witch rapped hard on the floor with her cane. "'Herbie, come forward!' she commanded. Go ahead, giggled Reddy, giving him a little push, and Herbie stepped before the witch. She did not notice him at first, being very busy writing upon a slip of paper with the quill pen, which she dipped into a little bottle. Presently she raised her head and handed him the paper. Bend low thine ear, she said, and Herbie obeyed. Keep this until I am gone, she added. Then hold it over yonder candlelight, for thy fortune is written there. Each boy was now called in turn and received a slip of paper. Then the old witch arose. To those who obey my commands, good luck. To those who disobey, ill fortune, she cried, shaking her stick in the air. And in another moment, she had quickly hobbled from the room. Chuck now turned on the lights and Lynn exclaimed, Where on earth did she ever come from? Why, witches come out of the air, explained Toad. They travel on a broomstick. Let's see what she wrote on the papers, proposed Hopi Smith. Yes, agreed Reddy. She told me to hold it over the candlelight. At which Chuck came forward with a candle that he placed on the center table, holding his slip of paper over the flame. The other boys eagerly gathered about to watch. Soon the paper got hot and the letters began to appear. Look, there's an A and two E's. And, and, cried Chuck, it's quite plain now. I can read it. Go on, shouted Reddy. Let's hear it. Chuck began. If your head will rule your heart, from a cent you'll never part. So tell your heart to rule your head, and all will mourn you when you're dead. That means if you're stingy, no one will care when you're gone, explained Lynn, at which Chuck laughed with the others. Herbie now held his over the light, and as the letters appeared, he read, Don't always be in too great haste. It often means a dreadful waste. Await your turn and take with ease the piece you want with fingers greased. That's you and the molasses candy, laughed Reddy, adding, here's mine. Your hair may be of brilliant hue, but this should never bother you. For when the winter winds blow most, your head will be as warm as toast. That's great, cried Reddy, as all the boys laughed. Fat now held his slip over the flame, and as the words appeared, read slowly, If you should eat a pound of lemons every other day, you'd grow as lean as any pole, for so I've heard folks say. But if, upon the other hand, you keep on eating pie, you'll grow so big and round and tall, you'll almost reach the sky. You'd better be careful, Fat, and buy a barrel of lemons, suggested Toad. I'll order a wagon load, grinned Fat. Hoping now held his paper near the candle, and in a moment read, If you're the lad to find the coin that's hidden in the flower, you, the highest, will enjoy of health and wealth and power. Toad's turn now came, and upon his paper was written, You're very fond of teasing all the girls and pulling off the ribbons from their curls. But mark my words, these tricks you'll surely rue, for when you're grown, a few they'll play on you. That's a good one for you to remember, Toad, laughed the others. Lynn now read, your mouth may be large, as I've oft heard you say, but your words show a brain that is working. You'll go to the top of the ladder because you do what you do without shirking. The old witch must have liked you, Lynn, commented Reddy. That's the best yet. Chapter 6 Blowing Out the Candles Let's try to blow out the candles next, suggested Toad, to which the others agreed. Bet I win this, boasted Fat. I've got a lot of wind. Reddy ought to win, laughed Chuck. He's always blowing about what he can do. A tray with ten candles was now placed upon the table by Toad, and the boys got in line while Father Brown lighted the candles. Then with paper and pencil he stood near at hand to keep the score. Only one puff each, remember, so make it a big one, he laughed. Fat and Herbie, from their places in the line, began at once puffing and blowing. Hey, what are you trying to do? called Lynn Smith. Start a cyclone? No, we're only practicing, was the laughing reply. I'll huff and I'll puff till I blow your house in, sang Herbie, adding. Here's where I win. Hopi Smith, first in line, filled out his chest with all the air it would hold and stepped forward. Puff! How many? shouted the others. Five, counted Father Brown. That's a good beginning. Reddy then gave Fat a poke with his elbow. Move up, he urged. Toad came next and turned around three times for luck, and then took a long breath. Puff! One, two, three, four, called Father. What? cried Toad in surprise. Only four? Why, I was sure they would all go out. Then came next. Standing upon his toes and holding his hands together high above his head, he turned slowly around, then leaning down he gave a great blow. Six, counted Father Brown. That's the best yet. Watch me, cried Chuck, who stood next, and placing his hands upon his hips, he started dancing about before the table. Ha, look at the funny dancer, shouted Hopi. Chuck gave a puff and blew out six candles, which tied Lynn's score. Fat, who was now next in line, leaned far over. Placing his hands on the floor, he lifted his right foot and shook it three times, then standing up, he puffed out his cheeks for a mighty blow. Look out, you'll bust, warned Herbie. Puff. By Jiminy, he did it, cried Toad. Good boy, Fat, as every candle went out. Reddy may tie him, suggested Father. Let's see. Reddy turned three somersaults for luck, and standing before the candles, blew with all his strength, and seven went out. Fat gets the prize, and it's just what he likes most, cried Toad. Oh, but I'm glad I came, sighed Fat, as he opened the big box of candy that Toad had handed him. Now I'll be good children, he added, and I'll give you each a piece. Chapter 7 The Search for the Silver Coin Shall we try to find the dime in the flower now? asked Toad of Father Brown, after the boys had all tried some of Fat's candy and found it very much to their liking. Fine, agreed Father, and I'll go get the pan. When he returned a few moments later, he carried a large tin dishpan in his hands with an inch of flour in the bottom of it. As Toad thought the floor the best place for this trick, the pan was placed there. How do you do it? asked Reddy, standing with his back to the fire. It's very easy, answered Chuck with a grin. There's a ten-cent piece on the bottom of that pan, and you've got to pick it up with your lips without using your hands to help. I'd have left my hands at home tonight if I'd known they were to be of so little use, laughed Herbie. Oh, you'll need them later on, replied Chuck. See if you don't. Three at a time, called out Father. In a three-minute, try to see who can find the dime. Hopi, you, Toad, and Fat try first. Down went all three boys on their knees before the pan of flour, and down into the flour went the three faces. Such a puffing and blowing that the flower rose like a white cloud and settled on the heads of the three who were pushing each other about in their efforts to find the money. They look like a lot of hungry pigs, laughed Reddy. You're not sick, are you, Toad? asked Herbie. Your face looks so pale, at which everyone laughed. Suddenly Hopi Smith jumped up with the flower falling from his face and the dime held fast between his lips. Hurrah! Three cheers for Hopi! shouted all the boys. The pan was now carried out for a supply of fresh flour and a new dime. The three boys were brushed off and soon were watching the others trying to find the dime. Say, Reddy, you're an old man, cried Toad. Your hair is turning gray. Look out there, Lin, warned Fat. You'll turn into a pancake if you eat all that flour. At this, Lin laughed, causing a great cloud of flour to rise from the pan. Chuck's digging for Sil! But before hope he could finish, Reddy stood up, his dancing blue eyes shining like two stars. Between his lips he held the dime. Good for you, Red! shouted Toad. I knew you'd win it! Chapter 8 The Wonderful Pie Mother Brown now appeared in the doorway. Won't you come into the dining room? she requested and the boys lost no time in accepting the invitation. That means something to eat, whispered Herbie. Wonder what it'll be. As the boys entered the dining room, they started with surprise, for there hanging over the table was the huge grinning face of a jack-o'-lantern. Well, exclaimed Fat, what a sweet face, which brought a round of laughter from the others. In the center of the table was a large paper pie, and seven ribbons came from under the crust, each of them having a card on the end. A plate of paper snap crackers of bright colors and the fancy yellow paper napkin at each place gave the table a gay look. What a funny pie, laughed Hopi. What's inside? Each one find the card with his name on it. Then we'll all pull together, directed Chuck, and find out. Here's yours, Fat, called out Lynn. You're over here by me, Ready? announced Toad. The fun's going to begin in a minute, cried Herbie. Come on, Hopi, here's yours. Everyone ready now, cried Toad, as each one held on to his own ribbon. Now one, two, three, pull! And with a tearing of paper, out came the contents of the pie. Huge wiggly spiders, toads that hopped about the table, mice that looked real enough to frighten any girl, long striped paper snakes, and giant grasshoppers were on the ends of those ribbons. The boys screamed with laughter as the queer-looking things hopped, rolled, and bumped about on the table. Look at what I've got, shrieked Hopi, holding an ugly-looking spider up to view. If that was real, I bet you wouldn't be within ten feet of it, said Fat. I'm going to scare our girl into fits with this mouse, laughed Herbie. She'll just take one look at it, then hop up on a chair. And won't she be mad when she finds out it isn't real? Say, fellows, watch this frog jump cried Fat, winding up a green and yellow one made of tin. Bet mine can beat it, boasted Reddy. Let's race them. Thought yours could hop further than my little froggy, didn't you? Teased Fat a minute later, after his frog had won. Well, you wait until I get mine oiled up, warned Reddy, and we'll try it again. When the boys pulled the snappers, the gay paper hats caused great merriment, Fat having a baby cap with long strings which he tied under his chin. Ah, here comes the ice cream, exclaimed Herbie. Look at the funny figures it's in, he added, as a large platter holding many odd little shapes was placed before Toad. Youngest first, announced Toad. What do you choose, Hopi? I'll take, uh, let's see, guess I'll have a pumpkin, finally decided Hopi, and a yellow ice cream pumpkin was placed before him. You're next, Reddy, said Chuck. Am not, Herbie's younger than I am, protested Reddy. I'll take the rabbit, laughed Herbie. I like chocolate and vanilla best. Reddy now chose a pink and white windmill, Chuck a pony. Don't I wish it was real, he said. Well, the turtle looks like it might taste pretty good, said Fat. And then it was Lynn's turn. It doesn't seem fair for you to be last, Toad, when you ought to have come after Reddy, remarked Lynn. Oh, well, it's my party, so I have to be last, was the answer. Well, agreed Lynn. If that's so, I'll have the ship. Oh, good, cried Toad. That leaves the engine for me, and I wanted it more than anything else. This turtle makes better ice cream than he would soup, grinned Fat, as he took another spoonful. I'm eating my rabbit's ears first, chirped Herbie. Well, I'm eating the smoke for my engine first, Toad chimed in. Here's the cake. You'll have to cut it, Toad, Lynn informed him, for it's bad luck to let anyone else cut a birthday cake for you. It was covered with white icing and ablaze with candles. Now watch the candles go out, and Toad gave a great puff. All over, he declared, laughing. Now I'll cut the cake. There is a piece of silver in it, Thomas, said his mother, and the one who gets it will be the lucky one in life, and a thimble for the one who is going to be a bachelor. At this, the boys urged Toad to hurry, and when the cake had been cut and passed around, each boy looked his piece over carefully. Hurrah, I've got the money, shouted Hopi, holding up a bright dime so all could see. And I've got the thimble, wailed Chuck. Now I'll have to sew on all my own buttons. Hopi's lucky, all right. He won the money and the flower, too, observed Herbie. It was now growing late, so the boys, much against their will, found their hats and bade goodnight to father and mother Brown. We've had a fine time, Toad, said Fat. Hope you have another birthday next year. I'm very sorry to have to do it, announced Lin, grasping Toad and turning him over his knee, but you must have nine spanks and one for good luck. Why didn't we think of it before, agreed the others, helping to hold Toad until each one had his turn. Well, I ought to be good for a year now, laughed Toad, after he managed to get away. Wait till it's your turn, Lin. Won't I give you some good ones? Good night, responded Lin. We've had a dandy time. You bet we have, echoed all the others. Goodbye, goodbye, called Chuck and Toad, standing in the doorway as the boys disappeared in the darkness. Ah, birthday, Spanx. It's amazing how long that tradition's been around. I mean, I remember doing that when I was a kid back in 19... 19- <laughs> <laughs> We're not quite done with the partying. But our next host isn't nearly as wholesome. I did debate choosing this particular prose story, but in the end I felt it appropriate for both the times and the theme, and I understand if you disagree. So come with me to Prince Prospero's ill-fated masquerade. The Mask of the Red Death By Edgar Allan Poe. The Red Death had long devastated the country. No pestilence had ever been so fatal or so hideous. Blood was its avatar and its seal, the redness and the horror of blood. There were sharp pains and sudden dizziness, and then profuse bleeding at the pores with dissolution. The scarlet stains upon the body, and especially upon the face of the victim, were the pest-man, which shut him out from the aid and from the sympathy of his fellow men. And the whole seizure, progress, and termination of the disease were the incidents of half an hour. But the Prince Prospero was happy and dauntless and sagacious. When his dominions were half depopulated, he summoned to his presence a thousand hale and light-hearted friends from among the knights and dames of his court. And with these retired to the deep seclusion of one of his castellated abbeys. This was an extensive and magnificent structure, the creation of the prince's own eccentric yet august taste. A strong and lofty wall girdled it in. This wall had gates of iron. The courtiers, having entered, brought furnaces and massy hammers and welded the bolts. They resolved to leave means neither of ingress nor egress to the sudden impulses of despair or of frenzy from within. The abbey was amply provisioned. With such precautions, the courtiers might bid defiance to contagion. The external world could take care of itself. In the meantime, it was folly to grieve or to think. The prince had provided all the appliances of pleasure there were buffoons there were improvisatory there were ballet dancers there were musicians there was beauty there was wine all these and security were within without was the red death it was toward the close of the fifth or sixth month of his seclusion and while the pestilence raged most furiously abroad that the prince prospero entertained his thousand friends at a masked ball of the most unusual magnificence It was a voluptuous scene, that masquerade, but first let me tell of the rooms in which it was held. There were seven, an imperial suite. In many palaces, however, such suites form a long and straight vista, while the folding doors slide back nearly to the walls on either hand, so that the view of the whole extent is scarcely impeded. Here the case was very different, as might have been expected from the duke's love of the bazaar. The apartments were so irregularly disposed that the vision embraced but little more than one at a time. There was a sharp turn at every twenty or thirty yards, and at each turn a novel effect. To the right and left, in the middle of each wall, a tall and narrow gothic window looked out upon a closed corridor which pursued the windings of the suite. These windows were of stained glass, whose color varied in accordance with the prevailing hue of the decorations of the chamber into which it opened. That at the eastern extremity was hung, for example, in blue, and vividly blue were its windows. The second chamber was purple in its ornaments and tapestries, and here the panes were purple. The third was green throughout, and so were the casements. The fourth was furnished and lighted with orange, the fifth with white, the sixth with violet. The seventh apartment was closely shrouded in black velvet tapestries that hung all over the ceiling and down the walls, falling in heavy folds upon a carpet of the same material and hue. But in this chamber only, the color of the windows failed to correspond with the decorations. The panes here were scarlet, a deep blood color. Now in no one of the seven apartments was there any lamp or candelabrum, amid the profusion of golden ornaments that lay scattered to and fro or depended from the roof. There was no light of any kind emanating from lamp or candle within the suite of chambers. But in the corridors that followed the suite, there stood, opposite to each window, a heavy tripod, bearing a brazier of fire that projected its rays through the tinted glass and so glaringly illumined the room and thus were produced a multitude of gaudy and fantastic appearances. But in the western, or black, chamber, the effect of the firelight that streamed upon the dark hangings through the blood-tinted panes was ghastly in the extreme, and produced so wild a look upon the countenances of those who entered, that there were few of the company bold enough to set foot within its precincts at all. It was in this apartment also that there stood against the western wall a gigantic clock of ebony, Its pendulum swung to and fro with a dull, heavy, monotonous clang, and when the minute-hand made the circuit of the face and the hour was to be stricken, there came from the brazen lungs of the clock a sound which was clear and loud and deep and exceedingly musical, but of so peculiar a note and emphasis that at each lapse of an hour the musicians of the orchestra were constrained to pause momentarily in their performance to hearken to the sound, The musicians looked at each other and smiled, as if at their own nervousness and folly, and made whispering vows, each to the other, that the next chiming of the clock should produce in them no similar emotion. And then, after the lapse of sixty minutes, which embraced three thousand and six hundred seconds of the time that flies, there came yet another chiming of the clock, and then were the same disconcert and tremulousness and meditation as before but in spite of these things, it was a gay and magnificent revel. The tastes of the duke were peculiar. He had a fine eye for colors and effects. He disregarded the decorum of mere fashion. His plans were bold and fiery, and his conceptions glowed with barbaric luster. There are some who would have thought him mad. His followers felt that he was not. It was necessary to hear and see and touch him to be sure that he was not. He had directed, in great part, the movable embellishments of the Seven Chambers upon occasion of this great fete, and it was his own guiding taste which had given character to the masqueraders. Be sure they were grotesque. There were much glare and glitter and piquancy and phantasm, much of what has been since seen in Hernani. There were arabesque figures with unsuited limbs and appointments. There were delirious fancies such as the madman fashions. There was much of the beautiful. Much of the wanton, much of the bizarre, something of the terrible, and not a little of that which might have excited disgust. To and fro in the seven chambers there stalked in fact a multitude of dreams, and these, the dreams, writhed in and about, taking hue from the rooms and causing the wild music of the orchestra to seem as the echo of their steps. And anon there strikes the ebony clock which stands in the hall of the velvet. And then, for a moment, all is still, and all is silent, save the voice of the clock. The dreams are stiff-frozen as they stand, but the echoes of the chime die away, they have endured but an instant, and a light, half-subdued laughter floats after them as they depart. And now again the music swells, and the dreams live, and writhe to and fro more merrily than ever, taking hue from the many-tinted windows through which stream the rays from the tripods. But to the chamber which lies most westwardly of the seven, there are now none of the maskers who venture, for the night is waning away, and there flows a ruddier light through the blood-colored panes, and the blackness of the sable drapery appalls. And to him whose foot falls upon the sable carpet, there comes from the near clock of ebony a muffled peal more solemnly emphatic than any which reaches their ears who indulge in the more remote gaieties of the other apartments but these other apartments were densely crowded, and in them beat feverishly the heart of life. And the revel went whirlingly on, until at length there commenced the sounding of midnight upon the clock. And then the music ceased, as I have told, and the evolutions of the waltzers were quieted, and there was an uneasy cessation of all things as before. But now there were twelve strokes to be sounded by the bell of the clock, And thus it happened, perhaps, that more of thought crept with more of time into the meditations of the thoughtful among those who reveled. And thus, too, it happened, perhaps, that before the last echoes of the last chime had utterly sunk into silence, there were many individuals in the crowd who had found a leisure to become aware of the presence of a masked figure which had arrested the attention of no single individual before and the rumor of this new presence having spread itself whisperingly around, there arose at length from the whole company a buzz or murmur, expressive of disapprobation and surprise, then finally of terror, of horror, and of disgust. In an assembly of phantasms such as I have painted, it may well be supposed that no ordinary appearance could have excited such sensation. In truth, the masquerade license of the night was nearly unlimited, but the figure in question had outherited Herod and gone beyond the bounds of even the prince's indefinite decorum. There are chords in the hearts of the most reckless which cannot be touched without emotion. Even with the utterly lost, to whom life and death are equally jests, there are matters of which no jest can be made. The whole company indeed seemed now deeply to feel that in the costume and bearing of the stranger neither wit nor propriety existed. The figure was tall and gaunt, and shrouded from head to foot in the habiliments of the grave. The mask which concealed the visage was made so nearly to resemble the countenance of a stiffened corpse that the closest scrutiny must have had difficulty in detecting the cheat. And yet all this might have been endured, if not approved, by the mad revelers around. But the mummer had gone so far as to assume the type of the red death. His vesture was dabbled in blood, and his broad brow, with all the features of the face, was besprinkled with the scarlet horror. When the eyes of the Prince Prospero fell upon this spectral image, which, with a slow and solemn movement, as if more fully to sustain its role, stalked to and fro among the waltzers, he was seen to be convulsed, in the first moment with a strong shudder either of terror or distaste, but in the next, his brow reddened with rage. "'Who dares!' he demanded hoarsely of the courtiers who stood near him. "'Who dares insult us with this blasphemous mockery? "'Seize him and unmask him, "'that we may know whom we have to hang at sunrise from the battlements!' "'It was in the eastern or blue chamber "'in which stood the Prince Prospero as he uttered these words. "'They rang throughout the seven rooms loudly and clearly, "'for the prince was a bold and robust man, "'and the music had become hushed at the waving of his hand.' It was in the blue room where stood the prince, with a group of pale courtiers by his side. At first, as he spoke, there was a slight rushing movement of this group in the direction of the intruder, who at the moment was also near at hand, and now, with deliberate and stately step, made closer approach to the speaker. But from a certain nameless awe with which the mad assumptions of the mummer had inspired the whole party, there were found none who put forth hand to seize him, so that, unimpeded, he passed within a yard of the prince's person. And while the vast assembly, as if with one impulse, shrank from the centers of the rooms to the walls, he made his way uninterruptedly, but with the same solemn and measured step which had distinguished him from the first, through the blue chamber to the purple, through the purple to the green, through the green to the orange, through this again to the white, and even thence to the violet ere a decided movement had been made to arrest him. It was then, however, that the Prince Prospero, maddening with rage and the shame of his own momentary cowardice, rushed hurriedly through the six chambers, while none followed him on account of a deadly terror that had seized upon all. He bore aloft a drawn dagger and had approached, in rapid impetuosity, to within three or four feet of the retreating figure, when the latter, having attained the extremity of the velvet apartment, turned suddenly and confronted his pursuer. There was a sharp cry, and the dagger dropped gleaming upon the sable carpet, upon which instantly afterwards fell prostrate in death the Prince Prospero. Then, summoning the wild courage of despair, a throng of the revelers at once threw themselves into the black apartment, and seizing the mummer, whose tall figure stood erect and motionless within the shadow of the ebony clock, gasped, in unutterable horror at finding the grave cerements and corpse-like mask which they handled with so violent a rudeness, untenanted by any tangible form. And now was acknowledged the presence of the Red Death. He had come like a thief in the night, and one by one dropped the revelers in the blood-bedewed halls of the revel, and died each in the despairing posture of his fall. And the life of the ebony clock went out with that of the last of the gay. And the flames of the tripods expired. And darkness and decay and the red death held illimitable dominion over all. I will say after that one is be safe out there. Mask up, backs up, and we'll get through this. Coming up next week, we have an old miser, the devil, and a pumpkin giant. You won't want to miss it. Thank you for joining me for this week's issue of The Mayor's Eve. If you like the podcast, be sure to drop by in the comments or leave a rating or review wherever you found us. Also, be sure to check out our Patreon if you'd like to support us. Patrons get early access, downloadable files to listen to offline, behind-the-scenes shenanigans, a Discord server, and a bonus story each month not aired on the podcast. I'll also be able to afford some new contemporary fiction and get a few other narrators in here to join us. All the fiction featured in this program is in the public domain. This production is copyright 2021 by Christopher James Mayer. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next week.